The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride, Tuesday evenings at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on ACB Media One or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Stacy, and I'm so happy to deliver this fresh episode of Pride Connection. Our show serves as a platform for profound conversations within our LGBTQ community, fostering growth, unity, and understanding. In today's episode, we embark on an enlightening journey through the exploration of aging within the LGBTQ community. We are honored to present Aging Over the Rainbow, a discussion that provides insights into the unique experiences, challenges, and triumphs faced by LGBTQ individuals as they age. Featuring our hosts, Anthony Corona and Miss Ruth Williams, and special guest, Dr. David Rosen, this conversation dives deep into the intersectionality of aging and LGBTQ identity. With thoughtful reflections and expert insights, we gain a clear understanding of the dynamics at play and the importance of fostering inclusivity at every stage of life. Welcome to Aging Over the Rainbow. Today, we are having an amazing conversation with David Rosen, who is going to walk us through things like pronouns and how services are available for those in the LGBTQ plus community, but it can also be applied to persons in any community if you take a couple of steps back. So David, thank you so much for being with us today. And we will do questions and answers at the very end of the program. Anthony, thank you for having me. Uh, To those of you um, in the audience, I want to describe myself a little bit. Um, I'm a white cisgender gay male. I will be going over what those terms mean. I have dark hair, wear glasses, and I have a salt and pepper goatee. I am the director of education and training for LGBT senior housing and care and the clinical director at Hudson Pride Center, um, both New Jersey based. And LGBT senior housing and care delivers trainings on issues relevant to seniors uh, anywhere across the country. Okay, so by the end of this session, you will be able to utilize currently affirming terms and pronoun usages to foster positive communications with LGBTQ plus older adults accessing service programs. And you'll be able to understand how anti-LGBTQ bias and discrimination leads to poorer health outcomes among LGBTQ plus older adults and some tips as to what we can do to fix it. So let's set the stage, understanding the LGBTQ plus community. In this first section, we're gonna define the needs uh, for LGBTQ plus affirming program services and identify current terms and pronouns to use to affirm the community when delivering care. So why address LGBTQ plus service needs? Well, 7.1% of adult Americans, that's about 23 million, openly identify as LGBTQ plus. Now remember, Um, openly identify as 7.1% of adult Americans means that there's quite a large number who aren't openly identifying that will um, bump up that number of the constituency of LGBTQ plus Americans to well above 23 million. 2.7 million are 50 years and older, and millions more family members, friends, and healthcare decision makers and providers are their allies. So 
knowing that all of these different groups, both the LGBTQ plus community and their allies are all seeking services that can affirm their sense of identity and, and address their unique needs, um, means that we have to start paying attention to the way that care gets delivered. So that way we can both engage and retain LGBTQ plus people into needed care services. Most of the US general population do not know what all the letters within the acronym, say LGBTQIAAP plus stand for. Um, so let's see how much you all know. When we talk about the word lesbian, people have their own ideas as to what that means. But the technical definition is that it's about somebody who is emotionally, sexually, and physically uh, identifies as a woman and is emotionally, sexually, and physically attracted towards other women. Gay identifies emotionally, sexually, physically as a man, and emotionally, sexually, and physically is attracted toward men. However, when you use the term gay, it's still widely used to refer to any same-sex relationship. So when you say gay, you need to distinguish it as gay men or the gay community in order to understand whether you're talking about people who identify as men who are attracted to other men versus just the entire community. Bisexual, this is an individual who identifies emotionally, sexually, physically as either a man or a woman, and emotionally, sexually, and physically is attracted towards their own gender and one other gender. And you'll note here that I said either man or woman for themselves, but it's about one gender and their own gender for the attraction. Because as we'll get to learn, there are more than two genders. And as long as you have more than two genders, the word bisexual really only applies to those subset of people who are attracted to two genders for the term bi. There are other terms we can use for people who are attracted to more than two genders, and we'll get to that shortly. So these are all sexual orientation terms. So another sexual orientation term is asexual, people who do not express sexual attraction to other individuals, regardless of the gender or gender identity or gender expression of the other person. So asexual is a term that basically says that there isn't an, a sexual attraction. It doesn't mean that they can't date. It doesn't mean that asexual people don't enter into relationships. It just means that the butterflies in the tummy don't actually arise um, when they're engaging with any other person. Uh, and that is a, a nickname for asexual people is ace. Pansexual is also a sexual orientation term. People who can experience sexual attraction to others, regardless of the gender or gender identity or gender expression or appearance of the other person. So this is the term generally used when we start to talk about two or more genders. And people who are pansexual might only be attracted to two genders, but one of the genders does not need to be their own. So for bisexual people, they're attracted to their own gender and one other. For pansexual people, it's two or more genders of any type. So I could be a pansexual person and I am a man, but I may only be attracted to, say, women and intersex people, and I'm not attracted to men. And that would still put me in a pansexual category. But if I wanted to be a bisexual person and, and take that identity and label, according to the definition, it, I would need to be attracted to my own gender, men, and then another gender. And it could be intersex people, it could be agender people, it could be women, but one of them would need to be my own gender. So I hope that makes 
a little bit of sense. I know this gets confusing because the terminology is constantly evolving and expanding. And when many of you learned about the community, there may have only been a few terms uh, that we knew about when we learned uh, about the community growing up. So those are the terms right now within the acronym that deal with sexual orientation. I mentioned intersex before. Intersex refers to people born with ambiguous genitalia or physiology or sex chromosomes other than XX or XY types. And this group of people are biologically not conforming to the definitions of how we view male sex features and female sex features. And they are still human beings, and yet we can't put them into a category of male or female because they have blended or ambiguous characteristics. An example would be somebody, say, who had XXY chromosomes. So they may be born, they'll have certain anatomical features that you might look at, and, and they might, say, present anatomically in terms of their genitals. They may look female, but when it comes to chromosomes, they're not fitting what we say females are supposed to be, XX. They're XXY. So the intersex group of people are just another variance on how humans can express themselves in the world. Uh, it is completely natural, and about 1% or so of the human population will be born with intersex features. But intersex is not about who you're attracted to. Um, it's also not really about how the gender you see yourself to be. What intersex is is, is the physiological category within the acronym. Another one is transgender. Now, transgender is not about the physical characteristics. It's not about who you're attracted to. It's actually about your sense of gender. So it's a term used to describe individuals whose gender identity, gender expression, or both is different from cultural expectations based on the gender someone was assigned at birth. And that when we say assigned at birth, what we're talking about are when babies are delivered, right? You, the doctor, nurse, midwife, they'll take a look at the baby and they have to check off something on a birth certificate. They usually look at the, the physiological features. So if the baby has a penis, they check off male. If the baby doesn't have a penis, they'll check off female. Sometimes blood work is done and they'll know the chromosomes. But ordinarily for the vast majority, it's done just with a visual examination. We don't actually get input from the baby. The baby is wailing away. The baby has no communication skills. So it isn't until the baby grows up learns their native language, and then can tell us their gender, that we actually can get what we call a gender identity. And that's the area where people then start to say whether what was assigned to them on that birth certificate is accurate or not. Now, the vast majority of us, it will be accurate. What was put on the birth certificate will be consistent with how we view ourselves um, in terms of our gender. But for some people, they will not agree with what was put on the birth certificate. They will have a different sense of self. And that group of people are called the transgender community. Within that community are a lot of different terms for different subsets, non-binary, agender, pangender, gender fluid. There's all sorts of terms, but all of that comes in under the umbrella of the transgender community. It does not imply any specific sexual orientation, nor does it require you to have a specific uh, gender expression or a transition status. So you could be a transgender person and do no medical interventions. You could be a transgender person and do all medical interventions. So it's really about your cognitive sense, not what you're doing to show the rest of the world that defines whether you're part of this group. The last 
two letters that I want to touch on in the alphabet soup are queer and questioning. I'll go with questioning first. Questioning is a term we're using for people who are still undecided. They're exploring unsure about some aspect of who they are, whether it's their sexual orientation or their gender identity or their biological sex. And that questioning period of time allows them entry into the community. They can be part of our community because they are welcomed in since they are not definitively sure yet. A lot of the reasons why people need time to figure it out has to do with the lack of access to education on LGBTQ issues for our, our children and, and young adults. When you don't gain access to words to help you understand your place in the world, it's hard for you to know, A, other people share similar concepts, features, um, desires. It's also hard to know what it is that you're feeling and what that means. If all you're ever told is everyone is a man or a woman and everyone is straight, then when you know that something is different, you may not know why it's different, how it's different, or how to self-define because you haven't been given any other vocabulary. What we're seeing is the questioning group is getting younger and younger because as we are getting more educated, um, we're finding that people who are older now um, have had more time to land on where they uh, know themselves to be. But you may still see a lot of questioning within your senior population because they spent so many years uh, worried about what people might say or the consequences that might happen that they suppressed any cognitive uh, considerations of what they might be feeling or thinking. Um, and it only starts to emerge the fears be of, in some ways, begin to uh, erode, either because they've just lived so long that they don't care anymore what people think, and so they're now willing to come out, or their defense mechanisms start to deteriorate through just biological processes, and what was always there now emerges because they're no longer holding back or able to hold back. Um, so you're not seeing as many questionings within your 20s and 30s and 40s anymore. Um, it's really usually younger than that or older than that, uh, but it still is a term. Finally, queer. Queer is a universal term that hits at all of these aspects. Someone's sexual orientation could be queer. Someone's gender identity could be queer. Someone's gender expression, the way that they tell the world through behavior or, or um, words, you know, what their gender is, could be queer. Someone's biological features could be queer. So all of these can be part of the term queer because queer is just meaning that we're, someone doesn't conform to social dominant expectations of what is proper. The problem with the word queer when you're dealing with the older adult community is that it was a derogatory word that was hurled at many who are over the age of 45. And it tri it's triggering to hear it continue to be used as a moniker for their own community. So, um, and you could be really comfortable in your skin and still have that gut reaction of discomfort. So we just generally recommend that you don't use queer when you're talking or working with people over age 45, unless they tell you that they personally identify as queer. But for many of those who are younger than 45, the word queer is perfectly acceptable. And the use of queer can't always be avoided because it is now part of lots of people's organizational names. Uh, for instance, 
in Hudson Pride Center, the place that I'm the clinical director of. We are called an LGBTQ community center in all of our advertising. And the Q stands for queer. Um, and so we do use it as part of a a more global perspective. So you can use queer when you're talking about a community without hesitation. I would just caution for individualized discussions. You be careful with that. That is essentially the alphabet soup for LGBTQ plus individuals. So let's take a quick look at sex assigned at birth, gender identity, and gender expression and sexual orientation to see whether or not these concepts are also familiar to you. So the sex assigned at birth is the gender put on the birth certificate based on the physical appearance. Gender identity is how you feel inside. Remember, that can't emerge until you have the ability to communicate um, and have a sense of self. And that usually emerges by the time someone is three or four years of age. Um, but some people may not come to understand their gender identity until well older than that. But it is possible for people to start to understand their gender as early as, as a toddler, you know, age range. Gender expression is the way we communicate gender identity through appearance and behavior. So the gender expression for babies is dictated by their family, right? The family decides what the baby is being dressed in, what colors are being used, what type of clothing. That all is a way of communicating gender to the world. And we have certain expectations as to what gender should be. Dresses tend to be associated with females and girls. So if a parent dresses their baby in a dress, people will look at the baby in the crib and go, what a cute little girl, without actually looking under the clothing to see what physiological features um, are there. It's a shortcut, essentially. If you dress, if you rely on colors, pink is generally associated with girls. So you have pink and blue as a lot of baby outfits. The problem is when the toddler emerges and starts to be able to say what their gender is, they'll start to want to express who they are in the clothing choices. And that may or may not conform with the parental expectation or societal expectation. And that's where you start to see some of the issues emerging for transgender youth who are not comfortable expressing the gender that's determined by what was on their birth certificate and would prefer to show their gender in other ways, the ways that make sense to them. So it might be a transgender boy insisting on wearing blue and you know wearing boy clothing, even though female was put on the birth certificate. Sexual orientation has to do with that sexual, emotional, or romantic attraction towards another person. That, again, emerges not when you're born, but when you're capable of having pubertal hormones. So you're generally not seeing the attraction component of a person emerge until they are nearing puberty. So you see it possibly in 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, sometimes as late as 17 or 18, depending upon when the hormones kick in. It's important to understand that just because a child of four or five gravitates towards certain gender expression, whether it's toys or clothing, that has no bearing on who they will be attracted to later on in life. They're two separate things. One's about gender and one is about attraction. And so there may be some correlation with, say, boys liking girl things and then growing up and realizing they're gay, but it's not a hundred percent. So we need to wait for the child to grow up to an age where they can tell us who they're attracted to rather than make assumptions or try to fit a square peg into a round hole. So the building blocks of human sexuality are basically ways of thinking about 
how people express their biological sex, their gender identity, their gender expression and roles, their sexual orientation, and even the behaviors they do sexually. Each of these spectral lines, um, and if you can't see the slide well, the slide basically has layered on top of each other five lines. Uh, and at each anchor on the line, so each anchor from the left to the right is anchored in what we think of as the binary of masculine, man, male, and on the right side, feminine, female, woman. And then there's all of these other areas on the line in between. And that's what we need to start thinking about. Each of these dimensions isn't a binary either or choice, but that there are places along the continuum of the line where someone could land for their own way of living in the world. I'm going to go through each one of these to help you better understand how someone can move through the world. When you're talking about what a cisgender identity is. We're talking about when one's internal sense of self matches the biological sexual organs one is born with. So in this instance, the two lines that matter to understanding what a cisgender identity would be your biological sex line and your gender identity line. The biological sex line would be anchored at either the left or the right where you would put a check mark or a circle or an X. And if it's the left, you're saying you're male. On the gender identity line, which you just draw right below it, you would put under gender identity, again, all the way to the left, man. And so what you're saying is a cisgender man aligns both on the left anchors of both the biological sex, sex assigned at birth line, and the gender identity line. They're the same. They are in alignment with each other. That is the vast majority of people. The way that we are physically put together matches how we view our gender. But a transgender identity occurs when one's internal sense of self doesn't align with the biology one is born with. So in this instance, we have two lines. One is for biological sex or sex assigned at birth. One is gender identity. But in this instance, if the individual checks off the left part of the line, which would be male, so boy was put on the birth certificate, when they grow older and they tell us what their gender is, they're going to check off on the right end of the line where there's woman. So they're telling us that they were born with body parts associated with boys, but they're letting us know through the gender identity line that doesn't matter what those body parts are, how I know myself to be is a woman. That is an example of how we can see visually interpret somebody's statement that I am a transgender woman. But what about non-binary identities? Well, this, remember, is under that transgender umbrella. For non-binary people, their internal sense of self, again, does not align with the anchor point. Instead, they find themselves along the middle sections of the gender identity line. So in this instance, a non-binary person might have male for the biology, but when they grow older, they'll tell us their gender identity is, say, a few inches to the right of exclusively male on the gender identity line. And so it's not really an alignment. It's not all the way over to female because they don't see themselves as female. They're somewhere along the continuum between the two anchor points of gender identity. So in this case, you would have a non-binary person, but you could also have a biology that is female. So you, they would check off on the right side of the biological sex line and their gender identity could be anywhere in the middle and they would still be a non-binary person and they would still use the same terms. Even though both individuals would have different sets of biology, it's the gender identity that matters for understanding how the person moves through the world. 
So differentiating sex from gender is not always easy to do because we're so used to the binary concept. So if somebody is assigned female on their birth certificate, but they know themselves to be a woman and they tell you, please use she, her pronouns. This individual is a cisgender woman. An example would be Rita Moreno, the actor. Um, She knows herself to be a woman. She has all the female body parts. She is a cisgender woman. If we have somebody though, who knows themselves to be a woman, please use she, her pronouns. That's the gender identity. That's what they know themselves to be. But it turns out that they don't have exclusively male or female body parts, that there's that ambiguous intersex component. Well, this individual is an intersex woman. Castor Semenya is an Olympic runner, and Castor has both male and female organs, um, the way we define those organs. And yet, Castor knows herself to be a woman, has no doubts about it. So even though she might have some male parts, she has testes that are undescended, but she has a vaginal opening and she has a clitoris. She is still a woman. She's an intersex woman. You have someone who was assigned female at birth, but when they grow older, they tell you, I'm a boy, I'm a man, please use he, him pronouns. Well, this individual would be Ryland Whittington, a transgender boy. Ryland, despite having female body parts, knows to his core that I am male. And he was able to say this when he was as young as four, and he's been consistent ever since. And when you start to question, well, how aren't they too young to really know? Were you too young to know your own gender when you were four, if you're cisgender? I think back to when I was four, I had no doubts that I was a boy. It would be really unfair for people to have told me when I was four that I shouldn't think of myself as a boy because I'm not old enough to know yet. Instead, if you are cisgender, you know, everyone presumes that you know exactly what you're talking about and you have the capacity to make that informed decision. It's only transgender individuals that suddenly we say, they're too young to understand and too young to know. You know, you know. And so like cisgender kids know that they are cisgender. Transgender kids know that they are transgender. It's really that simple. And here you have an example of somebody who say is assigned male at birth, but their gender identity is neither man nor woman. They're non-binary and they want you to use they, them pronouns. Tyler Ford is a model. And Tyler was presumed male at birth. But as Tyler got older, Tyler understood my gender is not a man. I'm not a woman. I am non-binary, something other. And there, for Tyler, Tyler asks for they, them pronouns to be used. Because right now, that's the easiest pronoun in English to be able to have people use a pronoun that is part of the language that we don't have to then learn a new, a new pronoun. But there are neo-pronouns, other pronouns that could be used as in a singular case, such as Z or here, that people who are non-binary would want you to use rather than they, them. Tyler uses they, them because it's a, it's a comfortable pronoun for a lot of people to use. But what you might also find is that, say, Tyler didn't put the heart or the circle or the X in the middle of the gender identity line, but did it just to the right of man, not quite at man but a little bit off, still would be part of non-binary community, but the pronouns that Tyler might give you might be he and they, saying to you essentially, I am non-binary. I don't want you to push me in with all of the cisgender men, but I'm comfortable enough with the idea of being presumed male that if you use a he pronoun, it's not going to make me uncomfortable. So if you can remember to use they, please do, but he is also acceptable. 
And that's why you may come across some people who will say for their pronouns, please use he or they. If they don't give you the singular pronoun of he or she, then they're saying that you can only use the pronoun that they're giving you, they, them, or if they're using one of the neo pronouns. They're all part of that non-binary continua, anywhere from just adjacent to man to just adjacent to woman is all part of the spectrum of non-binary individuals. They could use they, they can use many different terms. They could use terms like pangender, gender fluid, agender. So again, not pigeonholing everyone into one term. The whole spectrum allows for lots of different terms. And if you don't know a term, it's perfectly acceptable and reasonable for you not to know every term. But once you come across a new term, learn what the definition is and try to remember it. So that way you could be more affirming when you come across someone from the community who uses that term in the future. So what about pronouns? Well, people may use different pronouns based on their gender. Someone who identifies as male might use he, him, his. Now, this male person could be cis male, meaning what was put on the birth certificate and how they know themselves to be are both in alignment as male, but they could also be a trans male. Somebody who was assigned female at birth knows themselves to be male and goes with him and he. It could also be an intersex male. Someone with intersex body parts, but knows themselves to be a male would use he. A person who identifies as female might use she and her. And again, it could be cisgender women, transgender women, intersex women. They just need to identify as female in order to use the she, her pronouns. A person identifying as non-binary might use they, them, or remember that neo-pronoun Z, zero, zeros. And it's important to utilize the pronoun someone's asking you to use because that's the respectful way of referring to them. I am cisgender male. I don't find it particularly respectful if people call me she. I don't particularly like it. I'm he. And so when someone asks me to use the pronoun they, I have to keep remembering, right? If I'm not comfortable with people calling me she, why am I forcing someone else to have to be uncomfortable? If they want me to use they, then I'll use they. It's important that we respect the people that we're working with and delivering services to and using the terms that work for them, not the terms that are easier for us to remember. More gender identity terms. Transgender and non-binary are adjectives and they're to be used that way. So it's a transgender woman, transgender person, non-binary individual, non-binary person. You don't refer to people as transgendered or non-binary. It's not respectful to do it that way. It is simply uh, describing the relationship between a person's sex assigned at birth and their gender identity, not an adverb where you're trying to, or a verb where you're trying to say that something's going on with them. Nothing's going on with them. It's just a descriptive. Transsexual is not a synonym for transgender. It's only to be used for someone who's had actual genital surgery. And if they're asking you to use it, fine. But if they're not, the moment you use it, A, you could be wrong because you don't know necessarily if they had the surgery. But if you did know that they had the surgery and you use it without their permission, you're doing a HIPAA violation. You're basically stating to the world that this individual has had surgery. When you use the word transgender, there's no association. A, a transgender person could have had no medical intervention, could have all the medical intervention. They're all under that one umbrella term. Transsexual is very specific to only a specific medical subset. And that is a, a term that's typically kept only in medical charts. Transvestite is not a synonym for transgender. It's an outdated term for what we call cross-dressers. And that really has to do with gender expression, not identity. 
gender expression is the way you communicate gender. So if you know yourself to be male, but you're putting on female clothing, you're cross-dressing. If you're a transgender man and you're wearing male clothing, just because you may have a vagina doesn't mean you're cross-dressing because you know yourself to be a man. And so you're dressing appropriately for your gender according to social rules. So it's very important that we don't look at cross-dressing and transvestitism as a synonym for a transgender person. Transgender individuals are not cross-dressing if the outfits that they're wearing match their gender identity, but not their physiological features. Gender identity versus sexual orientation. Remember, the way you know your gender has nothing to do with your sexual orientation. What it has to do with is the label you might come up with to describe your sexual orientation. So for instance, I am a cisgender man. I am attracted to other men. Therefore, because I am a cisgender man and I'm attracted to men, I can use the word gay male. But if I happen to have been a cisgender woman and I'm attracted to men, then gay would not be the appropriate term. So it has bearing on what term is being used, but your gender identity and your sexual orientation are not linked just in the way you can come about understanding who you're attracted to. Gender identity and gender expression are also not linked. Gender expression is how you communicate your gender identity. Some people may want to communicate their gender in alignment with their gender identity. Some people may not. You may have people like my husband, a cisgender man, likes to wear skirts. He doesn't want to be a woman. He doesn't think of himself as a woman. He thinks they're comfortable. So, okay, that is a gender expression that is not associated with how men in society are supposed to, quote unquote, look, but it doesn't have any reflection on his actual gender identity. Transitioning decisions for trans and non-binary people really are up to them. It's just the process where someone no longer presents as their sex assigned at birth in society. And it could be just dressing as the gender as it, with which they identify. It could be the start of hormones or breast reduction or augmentation or genital surgery. It could even be doing nothing at all. You know, I described myself to you as someone with a goatee, glasses, I wear masculine clothing, but if I were a transgender woman, that's up to me to decide that. I could still present fully masculine to the world, but know myself to be a woman, and I am still a woman. It has nothing to do with the clothing I'm wearing or the jewelry or the behaviors. It is what you know yourself to be that matters. Most people, when they come out as transgender or non-binary, begin giving clues to society through a transition process, but not everyone will. Sometimes for safety's sake, they don't want anyone to know except themselves. Tips to avoid misgendering or dead naming, using a, a name that was associated with the sex with, with their birth certificate. Don't make any assumptions. Ask people the name and pronouns that they go by or use. Use they unless you know their actual pronoun. Offer your pronouns first when you introduce yourself. It's okay if some are confused um, when you ask for pronouns. Tell them that it's your agency's practice to do so. Blame it on the agency, but start getting used to giving your pronouns first. That way you avoid any confusion as to whether how you present matches. Now with the blind and visually impaired community, a lot of our gender tips, you know, shortcuts do have visual aspects to them. And so that may be very different for you that you, you're not using visual cues the same, but you can hear timbre of voice. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'm on the phone and somebody might say, ma'am to me. Um, they don't see me, but they're using something about my voice to make an assumption. So you have to then start thinking about, well, what cues are you using to associate men with masculine, women with feminine? And how do you get out of that habit? 
of doing the automatic assumption and starting to, you know, ask about pronouns to confirm or verify what you might be thinking is the case. It's okay to want to verify. It's not okay to jump to the conclusion. So the primacy of identity is basically that a person is always what they say they are. They decide whether they are a lesbian person, a queer person, a trans person, femme, butch, non-binary. We don't. So we need to give them the room to tell us who they are. Section two. Issues facing the older adult community, barriers to affirming services. The LGBTQ community is under threat. There has been a rise in anti-LGBTQ protests throughout the U.S. um, and in anti-drag protests, anti-LGBTQ plus protests all over the country in states that are both progressive and states that are not progressive. Um, The common target being drag-related events, essentially. And that, again, has to do with not conforming to societal expectations of gender. There is a lot of misogyny anti-female mentality embedded in this these drag-related issues. LGBTQ plus people are also under siege. The ACLU is tracking over 420, it's now actually more than 500, anti-LGBTQ plus bills in the U.S. And I come from New Jersey, a really progressive state, and we still have some of the bills in our legislature are anti-LGBTQ plus, and we have to be on guard for it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to get passed. Most likely not. We tend to have a very progressive um, legislature, but doesn't stop it from being presented. And it doesn't then mean the secondary harm to our LGBTQ seniors and youth who are worried. The seniors remember a time when they had no rights and they're fearful we're going to go back to that. And the youth who just see people hate them and don't know what to do about that. And so what we have are real moments in this current year in which trauma is really something to be thinking about. And I wanted to put this out to Miss Ruth or Anthony. What is um, Blind Pride International doing in response to all of these anti-LGBTQ efforts across the country? By the time this airs at convention, we will have run what we're calling Don't Say Gay Won't Make Us Go Away episode of our podcast, Pride Connection. It is personal testimonials with factual and statistics weaved in on how the anti-LGBTQ plus legislation makes us feel, affects our community, and how we feel about those that came before us and fought for our rights and those that are coming out now or or will come out and have to come into this upheaval of, you know, reversal of the the tide of gaining rights. And now, you know, where the pendulum is swung and we are potentially losing rights. We also do a lot of outreach within the blind and low vision community and also to outreach to LGBTQ centers around the country, letting them know we're here and letting them know that we support. So if there are initiatives, uh, we are willing to collaborate. And I think what I'd like to say is that one of the things BPI is doing is continuing to thrive in the face of all these regressive laws. It doesn't sound like an accomplishment, but I think just the fact that these things are are coming out of all quarters. And the fact is, we're still reaching out to new members. We're still thriving our personal lives. We're still staying connected. And those things are really equally important. Just knowing that we've got each other's backs and you don't have it everywhere in the world, but here in this in BPI, this is a real family and we take care of each other. So I just wanted to point that out. And that's thanks to Anthony and to Leah and Gabe and all of the the members who just keep going, who just keep on going. And then David, there are 
folks like you who come along and help us to educate and help us to put proper language and proper perspective to some of the things that our larger blend and low vision community haven't had to think about as much as they may have to think about it now. And so through education, we're also seeing that we are finding new avenues of allyship. Well, thank you for that, Anthony and Miss Ruth. Um, you know, education is key. Um, if we're going to start to move the, the dial back towards um, some semblance of um, compassion and uh, security for the community. Um, most bills and laws are focusing on prohibiting trans kids from participating in sports programs or using restrooms that match their gender identity uh, or medically approved gender assignment medication, puberty pausing medications. Over two thirds of these 500 plus bills really are focused on harming the trans community. Um, some focus on banning drag performance or book um, banning or taking out content from schools and colleges that talk about anti-discrimination. Um, yeah. Some include criminal charges against parents or professionals who seek to provide LGBTQ plus affirming education or health care. These are all really damaging to the general population. But for older adults, they are facing an array of unique anti-LGBTQ plus barriers and inequalities that stand in their way of experiencing a healthy and rewarding later, later life, just at a time when they are that most vulnerable. Remember, as we age, no matter how well you keep yourself, the body starts to, to deteriorate. I mean, I, I'm 51 and I'm already experiencing some of that. And it just gets harder and harder to have to manage all the physical stuff that's going on while also combating all of the anti-LGBTQ focus that is happening throughout the country. And it creates a real sense of panic that when you're going to need someone the most, when you're going to need government services, when you're going to need a community, the community won't be there for you. Discrimination is defined as the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people, especially on grounds of race, age, gender, or orientation, ability. And what you can think of discrimination as is the removal of resources. So wherever you have these laws that take things away from people, you are removing access to important resources that can help someone live a healthy life. Bias is a prejudicial sentiment in favor of or against a person, group, or concept compared with another person, group, or concept, usually in a way considered to be unfair. And it's unfair even if it's in favor. It's basically highlighting one group over another. Bias, we can't really control very well because that's about emotion, right? But it's what you do with the bias that's going to matter. And it's the discrimination that comes from the bias that is really at the crux of what we have to pay attention to in terms of educating and advocating and voting. Some bias discrimination driven issues that impact older adults in the LGBTQ plus community include a less financially secure. Many LGBTQ plus people couldn't move up the ranks in corporate America because if they came out, they were you know, afraid they would lose their jobs. So you kind of stay in lower level positions where you don't have a lot of scrutiny. You also don't have um, the legacy of marriage. Marriage equality has only been around since 2015. Many older adults lost their life partners before marriage equality, and you can't get the social security benefits of your higher paying spouse unless you actually were legally married before death. And so a lot of LGBTQ older adults who didn't have the benefit of the marriage certificate ended up being unable to afford their homes once their partner died because they couldn't live on their own income. More likely to face service discrimination. You know, transgender individuals trying to find a shelter that will take them, um, nursing homes that don't use trans patients as, you know, guinea pigs for everyone to gawk at when they're doing medical exams, less likely to have or rely on kin-based family. Many of our older adults 
were rejected by their families of origin and so have no next generation relatives to help watch out for them. And so they've been relying on each other as, you know, friendship networks, but everyone's aging. It's sort of like the people in most need helping the people in most need rather than having, you know, healthier people being able to look out for them. And they're also more likely to experience poorer health because they haven't been engaged in healthcare systems. So many people went without health insurance. You also have the medical system not really understanding the, the unique needs of LGBTQ older adult healthcare. Some of the health disparities for seniors, societal stigma and discrimination and violence, culturally incompetent biased providers. There are providers today who won't prescribe PrEP to sexually active gay men because they think it's condoning gay sex. You have no access to PrEP without a, a, a medical provider. And if the medical provider won't give you access to a medication that can keep you from getting HIV, it means your chances of getting HIV rise. Institutional policy-based discrimination. Are there gender-neutral bathrooms in an agency public space? Lack of targeted health research and public health ed campaigns. In the 1980s, uh, there, there was actually a law in the books from the federal government that said you couldn't target HIV prevention campaigns for gay men, even though they were they were the highest numbers of people getting HIV. But it was written into law that you couldn't use federal dollars for it. Lack of access to services and policies that are affirming to the community. Lack of transportation, health insurance, fear, poverty, homelessness. All of these create some of the most common health disparities, such as higher rates of obesity, breast cancer, heart disease among lesbians, higher rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and suicide, increased risk or more severe for those who are not out, higher rates of drug and alcohol use, including smoking, more likely to suffer injury from violence than their non-LGBTQ plus peers, especially trans women, and especially even more so trans women of color. Older adult health disparities, 23% of LGBTQ plus older adults report having poor general health versus 4% of their non-LGBTQ plus peers. And when you look at it by, you know, by population, lesbians, bisexual women, gay men, all are around the same, that same 20 23%-ish. But when you look at transgender individuals and bisexual men, it skyrockets. Transgender individuals is 33% report poor general health. How many of our medical providers are actually trained in, in trans health issues? They have the most need and yet the least um, likely to have competent practitioners. Bisexual men are also 29% more likely to have poor general health. And that has a lot to do with bisexual stigma, where the gay community doesn't trust bisexual men to really be bisexual. And so they shun them. And so they don't get the support of the gay community. And the bisexual men don't get support from straight community because they're seen as accepted. And so they're stuck on their own. And when people are isolated, health declines. Older adults' thoughts on long-term care. 67% fear neglect. 63% fear abuse, 62% fear unequal access to social and health services, almost 63% fear verbal or physical harassment, nearly 56% fear having to hide their sexuality or identity, 88% would feel more secure with specialized trained LGBT trained providers. So you've got nearly two thirds of the older adult um, population of LGBTQ individuals really not happy with the long-term care system that we have in this country. As they age, many LGBTQ plus older adults then go back in the closet hiding their sexuality due to the fear that they'll experience bias, discrimination, shame, and violence. It can also be the case for younger LGBTQ plus individuals facing physical conditions that require an increased reliance on community services. So it's not just the older adult community. Anyone who is experiencing um, physical limitations that require help from a social system may go back in the closet or not come out for fear that they won't get help if they are known to be LGBTQ+. Can't the federal government help? Well, the federal anti-discrimination policy actually doesn't apply to LGBTQ plus people. We're not considered a protected class. So even though it's in there, it's not really a mechanism. We really need the Equality Act to be passed through Congress to have an actual federal legislative response.
In 2021, President Biden issued an executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. And this put in federal regulations protecting LGBTQIA plus individuals access to programs in housing and healthcare. Problem is, He's only president to 2024. Whoever comes in in 25, if it's not President Biden, that executive order goes away. And so any of the federal protections are only good for the life of the executive branch, unless we have legislative solutions. But at the state level, we're doing better. As of January 1st, uh, 2023, California is now shielding families of trans youth from criminal prosecution if they go to California for gender-affirming care. Colorado, Illinois, Maryland, New Mexico, Minnesota have also passed bills designed to shield transgender care. In March of 2023, New Jersey did an executive order. But again, that's wonderful to protect trans health care, but it's only good while Governor Murphy is in, in office. Who knows you know, what will happen when our next governor comes in in 2025. Current state legislation protecting our seniors is only Massachusetts, New Jersey, California, and Illinois. Four out of 50 states. D.C. has a similar older adult protection law in place, and D.C. is larger than, you know, at least a third of the states. But that still really doesn't protect our seniors nationally the way it should be. So our last section, putting it together. How do we develop an LGBTQ-affirming housing and care environment? Equity is more important than equality. Equitable access results in equal opportunity. The way to think about that is I have full visual sight. Anthony does not. Anthony has access to a seeing eye dog. Should I get equal access to a seeing eye dog so I can walk down the street? Is it no? Actually, you know, but that's equal. Equal is that Anthony shouldn't get the you know preferential treatment. But Anthony having the dog allows Anthony to walk no differently through a neighborhood than I can walk, and so we have equal outcomes navigating safely an environment of our neighborhoods because he has the dog that I don't need in order to be able to achieve that same outcome. We have to make certain that equitable access occurs. And that way we have to be thinking about what are the what are the resources that are being denied people through discrimination that have to be returned to them so that they can get to the equal outcomes. How do we do that? Well, initial steps is make the case. Identify stakeholders, assess your organizations, determine financial opportunities in your market area, present a needs-based case for why an affirming service program is needed for the LGBTQ plus community and evaluate access to existing community services. This is the most important first step. Look at your environment, see what's needed. Number two, post welcoming cues, display symbols that identify your program as welcoming for the LGBTQ plus community. Now, again, for blind and visually impaired communities, what would that look like for you? What could that be? Um, if these visual cues are not how you navigate a world in order to know that this is a safe place. Like if I go into a store and I see a pride flag symbol sticker on the door, I know that this particular store is welcoming to me. But if you can't see that sticker, what tells you that this is safe for you to go into? And you need to figure that out, what those welcoming cues should be for the blind and visually impaired community. You need to figure those out and then create a system in place where a network throughout your country can start to employ those particular symbols. Number three, create LGBTQ plus affirming screening and intake forms. Using people's stated pronouns validates them and their identity. Be sure to include options beyond male and female on sex. Ask what name they would like to be called if different from their legal name. Be sure to include a question about sexual orientation as part of intake. Number four, identify LGBTQ plus service needs and essential community partnerships. Who are LGBTQ plus trained physical and mental health providers in your area? If you can't afford to hire them into your own space, create coordinated linkages of care agreements with LGBTQ plus trained 
physical and mental health care providers elsewhere. Access uh, to certified professional service relationships essentially is what that is. Become familiar with LGBTQ plus community culture, values, beliefs, risks, and related issues, especially for subpopulations. LGBTQ plus people of color have a very different world experience than white LGBTQ plus people. Visually impaired LGBTQ plus people have a very different life and world experience than those who have no visual impairments. How do you make certain that the type of services you give are going to meet the needs of the unique population? Not just a blanket, oh, well, this is you know a pride sticker we're putting up. If everyone's blind and can't see the pride sticker, it's not going to help. It's only going to help those who visually can see. So you need to think about how do you create partnerships with the entities that can actually create that familiarity. Number five, execute other affirming practices, inclusive operational documents. Do you have non-discrimination policies in place in your employee handbooks? Post a SOGI non-discrimination pledge, SOGI sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. It's an acronym for essentially the sexual and gender minority communities. Put pronouns on ID badges or charts. Public um, all gender bathrooms. Make certain that they're not just one at the in the basement at the back end of a building, but that in public areas, the bathrooms are all gender. Community engagement. You have a response when there are, might be protests. Do you know what to do? Um, have you thought of this you know, in advance? Resident patient per, program participant rights, advocacy and partnerships, informational and physical privacy. Do you ensure that you know, your transgender clients are not, you know, you're not creating one of a circus where people can come, you know, view the trans person. Inclusive programming, literature, media. What does that mean for inclusive programming? Offer culturally appropriate speakers, themes, literature, targeting various LGBTQ plus subpopulations. Incorporate LGBTQ events into your programs and groups. LGBTQ Health Awareness Week, last week in March. Transgender Day of Visibility, March 31st. Day of Silence, second Friday in April. Lesbian Visibility Week, last week in April. LGBTQ plus Pride Month, June, Bisexual Visibility Week, third week in September, Coming Out Day, October 11th, Transgender Day of Remembrance, November 20th, World AIDS Day, December 1st. Six, address resident and community concerns. Introducing and implementing an LGBTQ plus welcoming and affirming policy in a community or organization may result in some resistance or concern from residents, families, other staff. They're usually the result of learned bias both blatant and unconscious, that can stem from sociocultural backgrounds, religious dogma, education, life experience. So learn to anticipate what that might be and find ways to address it. Ensure LGBTQ plus sensitivity training is provided to staff at all levels of client contact. At minimum, the training should occur every two years and as part of onboarding and include terminology, best practices for providing affirming services, a history of the discrimination, bias, and health disparities, and how to establish an affirming and welcoming environment. And at this point, we'll be having an open discussion as to if you think your community is prepared to affirmingly and sensitively respond to the needs of an increasingly open LGBTQ plus population. The, by far, the question that we get the most is, I feel so uncomfortable asking someone for their pronouns. What is a, uh, you know, a general way to ask or an easy way to ask or a more comfortable way to ask? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. One easy way is give your pronouns first. Hi, I'm David. My pronouns are he, him. What are yours? Start with yourself. Um, it opens the door. If you're asking someone else without giving your own, you can put off the vibe that, why are they asking me? Like, what, do they think I'm not? You know, what do they think I am? Am I dressing inappropriately? Like, you, they can all go into this like whirlwind of, of confusion. But if you start with your own, then you're basically saying, no, this is just part of the process. Sometimes it happens where it dawns on you in the middle of a conversation and you don't 
quite know what the person you're talking to identifies as. So is there a fluid way to work it into a already happening conversation? I would just pause and just say, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I forgot when we first started to talk to let you know my pronouns. Um, oh, you know, they're he, him. Could I ask you yours? Or put it on your Zoom profile like we do here, right? You could just yeah. put it on your profile. There's ways of doing it. The, the thing is you have to figure out because of the, the blind and visually impaired world, you have to do it in a different way, in a more creative way. But you have to do it verbally. And so you have to figure out what works best. That's going to be a project for BPI in the second half of the year. As we conclude, thank you for being a part of these impactful discussions. Stay connected, share your thoughts, and let's carry the conversation forward. Your voice is a driving force for our inclusive journey. This is Stacy, wishing you strength and pride as we continue. Until next time, stay well and stay engaged. You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, please visit our brand new website, bpi.gay. Thanks for listening.